Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. On today's episode, Richard and I have a bit of a news recap uh, to discuss some of the things going on at the moment and express some of our disappointment and frustration with those things. Anyway, enjoy. Hi everyone. Hi, Richard. How are you? Hello. I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Good, good. Um, As per usual, nowadays, I have to do a little bit of a disclaimer and just let everyone know that you may well indeed hear my baby in the background. Um, She's nine and a half months now, almost 10, going on 50, apparently, um, in her assertiveness. (laughs) She tends to talk a lot, yell a lot, et cetera. So you may hear her in the background. You may also hear my dog. So just giving everyone everyone a heads up. Um, this is the nature of podcasting in with a family. So anyway, sorry about that. Uh, today's episode, we're actually going to be doing sort of a news update, general discussion slash assessment of the world. Um, you know, I've been deviating a bit from doing some of the typical history podcasts and interviews only because it's been very difficult for me to sit down and actually like do the invitation scheduling and also just in recognition of the fact that like it's the holidays, holiday time, holiday season, professors, academics, and activists also have personal lives and they're trying to relax and, you know, take a breather um, and, or they're super busy in preparation for that time off. Um, So I'm just respectful of that. And also just bearing in mind that like right now, because of the pandemic, home life is office life, is school life, it, you know, it's like everything. And I recognize that um, parents in particular are really taxed uh, trying to work from home and also take care of their kids and any other household and family needs that they're managing and juggling. Um, so just bearing that in mind and understanding and, you know, respecting that fact. So we will go back to having interviews soon, but just giving everyone a heads up as to why we are not a heads up, but I guess a postscript of sorts. Like a, <laughs> I don't know what the word is, but letting everyone know an explanation maybe is the word I'm looking for um, as to why we haven't had as many live guests lately. It's a mix of my own personal obligations, um, being tired, being busy, and also out of respect for those of others. Um, but yeah, we're coming back on that front very soon. Uh, Okay, now with all of that out of the way, I also just wanted to do another little layer of housekeeping to remind everyone to please subscribe on the uh, Patreon page, and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc. You can donate for a dollar or more. Uh, You can also subscribe to the podcast for free. All this stuff is uh, free always, but you know, the donation is always welcome. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast on anywhere where you get your podcasts. So iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify, uh, yeah, all those places. There's like a laundry list of these services now. Um, so any of them we're there except for, I think, except for the ones that like charge you money. So we're not interested in any of those and we don't, uh, I don't, I don't think we're being picked up by any of those, but yeah, we wouldn't charge you any money to listen to us talk about stuff. And um, also just make sure that you follow us on social media. So we're pretty active on uh, Twitter and Facebook. And we'll have some new things coming out on that front very well um, 
or as well very soon. So keep a lookout on that front. And yeah, okay, enough with the housekeeping. Let's get mm. on with the world. Uh, Richard, why don't you start us off? I know you wanted to talk um, and had some things ruminating up upstairs in your mind about what's going on lately. So yeah, you feel free to open us up with uh, your talking points. Oh, well, I, I guess there's just uh, kind of do a broad recap a little bit. There's just been a lot in 2020. <laughs> and I mean, I guess throughout uh, the last few years, really, the Trump administration as it is coming to an end, as or at least that's what the <laughs> what we're we're expecting, uh, and I guess it's been a it's been a wild ride and a lot of experiences for me, a lot of learning and a lot of just kind of uh, I guess growing uh, a personal level and also just a more formal educational level, like is with this podcast and with other experiences and kind of reaching out to broader communities and so on and so forth. So I feel like I've broadened my horizons quite a bit uh, recently. And so I've started to hear more news stories from around the world. The Indian protests and for the farm workers has been a big one that's been going on lately that uh, I think fits to talk about. And I guess some of the other things that I've been thinking about have been just politically how to move forward from here. Where are we at? It, it's, I was looking back at kind of the podcast catalog and noticed it was about this time a year ago when we uh, read Mao. And at this time now we're on the verge of uh, a bunch of uh, eviction protections and uh, all of that falling away. And a lot of people, either being pushed into the streets and they're already being dragged out into the streets by police in various states. And I, I just, uh, I, I think it's interesting how, uh, I guess proper the timing has been for that, that growth. It gave me time to kind of internalize and understand what else was there behind Mao besides just kind of the headline, uh, distaste with uh, landlords, I guess I'll go with. And uh, so I guess those two things are the kind of things that have stuck out with me uh, the most at this moment are the uh, massive suffering that we see wrong with coronavirus and then leading into what's uh, a lack of protections and funding so that people can stay in their homes leading into this next year, as well as the massive uprisings we see by workers uh, internationally, specifically most recently in India. Yeah, that's a good, I mean, a short list, but a very fulfilling one, I think, um, of things to discuss. It's interesting that you bring up the Mao recording because I'm like looking at my living room and remember sitting there reading and discussing this with you. Um, and it makes me sad because it was like, the time before like that's what I've been calling everything pre-coronavirus pandemic you know like this was a little bit um before all of that got ramped up and yeah it's it was it's interesting like reflecting back on that it seems like it was just yesterday we recorded that and it was like it was a year ago um yeah I think for me the thing that's been on my mind the most um is just kind of, I've been trying to pay attention to these appointments that are being made by Biden. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that there's been, at least on, on the part of the mainstream press, a rather, um, you know, like, happy, content, um, even if not congratulatory tone being taken by them. And, and especially because, um, you know, Biden is taking advantage of, of putting in a lot of quote unquote firsts while at the same time making sure those firsts are like really rapacious in their neoliberal politics and like, if not like right wing, to be honest, straight up right wing politics, um, especially when it comes to foreign policy and whatnot. And so that's been frustrating me. At the same time, I think, you know, what we're seeing um, from some elements of the left, at least the on, what I loosely call the online left, or what loosely formed, I should say, the online left, is the fact that there's been a lamentation of uh, the diversity within this group. Um, and they've been focusing on that in some ways, sometimes more than the actual harm that they'll cause. So like, there's, there's a bit of language around like, oh, this is identity politics, this and that, like, and what ends up happening is I think that they get bogged down in like dissecting the weaponization of identity politics. And, and then, and then like that takes up 90% of the conversation as opposed to like, what that person is actually going to do or potentially do in office or like their record. You know what I mean? So while I understand Mm -hmm. that they're trying to refute, um, you know, this reliance on the kind of superficial approach to diversity as an answer to, um, you know, like hiring issues and stuff in, in, in um, executive positions, what they end up doing is they ignore, uh, you know, and I don't think it's intentional, but they end up ignoring uh, or kind of decreasing the degree of the discussion that could and should be had about what these people's records are and what they're going to do or potentially do when in office. And then more so, um, especially as it relates to the people of color and women, for example, that they may actually end up harming or most likely will harm, to be quite honest, in their position. Um, And I think that there's been a sort of disproportionate focus on personalities. So like Neera Tandon, you know, everyone knows Neera Tandon is terrible and Neera Tandon said this and that and was acting up on Twitter and whatnot. Um, And she said certain things in video about being against, um, you know, saving social security and um, social programs and things like that, quote unquote, entitlements as they're called by neoliberals. But like, okay. And everyone's just kind of showing the same footage and saying the same things, but like, there's got to be a little bit more depth at this. And I think the focus is like on Nira because Nira is such a, a you know, personality, a, a sort of um, acceptable person to hate on the left, which I mean, I'm with them, you know, like yeah, I obviously have issues with her and her politics, but I think that like, Sometimes, as I said, I think people get wrapped up in in trying to kind of tear down one person and then they miss the forest for the trees. Um, And I think what we're seeing is, you know, what's beginning to shape up as a very, very, very dangerous, um, threatening group of people um, in very many elements of, of the government. I mean, in some cases, literally the people that a lot of people on the left were like, do not appoint this person or like, don't even consider appointing this person. And then he ends up appointing. So like the agricultural department is a good example of that. Um, the guy that he put in place or initially, like people were kind of pushing, some people were pushing for Marsha Fudge, uh, who's a, a representative from Ohio, 
a black woman um, and somewhat progressive. I mean, by, by the standards that we have in Washington right now, she's a progressive, um, but she had been, you know, seen as sort of a favorite uh, for that pick and then was critical of the typical appointments of black um, officials to, uh, to head groups like HUD or departments like HUD, the Housing and Urban Development Department or um, Labor, if I'm not mistaken. And she ended up getting put as the head of HUD. And so there's some discussion about, you know, okay, we're adding people of color, we're adding women, we're adding women of color, but then um, are they still sort of reifying the old stereotypes um, and placing a limit on um, what people can do, what position and why. Um, and at the same time, I would say hiring people for positions that are incredibly scary, um, especially related to foreign policy, that have a history of, of harming um, people abroad. And, you know, like, what do those records look like? And further, what can we do to stop it? And I think, like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't have answers to that personally. But um, I question the degree of power that we have on the left, especially when it comes to foreign policy appointments. I think for domestic stuff, there's some safety net because, ironically, because the Republicans will reject a lot of people that uh, Biden is going to, to appoint or try to get passed through the, um, the uh, confirmations. But I, I don't see them rejecting his foreign policy people. And yeah, I mean, I, I just, I'm kind of like, I don't know what that's going to look like. Um, and, you know, may, they might, like Mitch McConnell and, and et al., you know, like they might just reject everybody on on out of principle, you know, that, oh, okay, it's, it's a Biden pick, so we're going to reject them, we're not going to confirm them. But, um, you know, I wonder, like, are they going to reject any of these people? Because at the end of the day, Republicans and Democrats, um, they tend to have the same objectives, when it comes to foreign policy, which is scary, and it because it always goes in a right wing direction. No, yeah, I, I think those are interesting points, and I think they tie into some of the other things that have come up as well in the past year or so. And the picks in particular, you mentioned that you know, kind of, and Biden said this as well. You know, wants his cabinet to look like America, but. In, in that kind of shallow presentation, but he's falling short even there where uh, Clyburn has been disappointed in his picks so far. And I think uh, a chairperson for the uh, API group in Congress mm -hmm. also recently uh, was said that they wanted a secretary or a cabinet level representation and basically got shot down by the Biden team. Yeah. And so they're not even meeting that, that superficial level of uh, putting people that look like the, the people that they want to put this terrible, uh, you know, policy in place against or whatever, you know, they, so they're falling short. He's falling short even of that bar of from the people that aren't even holding him to, I would say a leftward contention at all, you know, just essentially just ask expecting, a return for the favors that they provided for him politically and Clyburn speaking up and essentially cinching the South for Biden and potentially really clinching the nomination along with the consolidation encouraged by Obama. Mm -hmm. And then as well as, 
like I, I I don't know if the I, I I haven't looked specifically at the polling recently, but uh, I imagine Biden's uh, support uh, was strong among uh, Asian Pacific Islanders compared to at least comparatively to Trump, and so they are expect there's an expectation that even if it's for nothing else but support and voting in the traditional sense, there's an expectation that if we're going to support you, that you're going to then do like give us representation and, and at minimum a seat at the table. I, for one, am kind of uh, worn out or tired of the perspective of looking for a seat at a, what I see as a rigged table, particularly when you find out that when you get to that seat, your job is to essentially just nod and repeat whatever the person that got that seat for you there uh, expects you to say. And if and when you ever deviate from that, you'll be expelled and somebody else will be put in that seat and they'll remind you constantly whenever you think about, you know, speaking up that there's always a, a bunch of people ready to take your place. And so the idea that you then shift things from the inside never seems to work out, at least for the people that I've seen have recently over the last five or 10 years come to the realization that that hasn't been working for them. I mean, one of the best uh, versions of that seat at the table metaphor I heard was, um, I don't know who said this, but I heard that like, do you really want to seat at the table if you're the one being served as the dish, you know? Um, and I think that that's a good way to put it because ultimately like this is a sort of self-cannibalizing process for a lot of these people. Um, and insofar as they see themselves as part of the collective, right? Um, I think on the surface, many do, right? Obviously, people who are up for these positions who identify as Black or female or whatever do identify as a member of that community insofar, like however you want to define community, but in the popularly defined way. Um, but at the same time, their interests are very different oftentimes from the vast majority of the community and or the, the community that they purport to represent and support. Um, so there's a big gap between, you know, the average Black citizen and voter versus the Black people that are being appointed to these positions who have Ivy League backgrounds and or who've worked in government service forever or who are wealthy and, you know, some of these are ands as opposed to ors. Um, but I think that, that that disconnect is very real. Um, but, you know, they, in, in, at the same time, there are some people who've come from the bottom, um, who've come through public schools, who've dealt with, uh, you know, government aid their whole lives, who came from families who were immigrant groups, et cetera. And they, at the same time, once they get to those higher positions, you know, they cut the ladder from under them, right? They, instead of helping other, and Neera Tandon is a very good example of this because she often talks about how her mother was an immigrant, her family, you know, she comes from a family of immigrants from India, and then they relied on welfare and food stamps and things like this to survive. And then, you know, she's often going along with the administration that she's representing, um, when, at least when she worked for the Center for American Progress, to go against those programs. We also see this with Kamala Harris, and I've mentioned this, um, I don't remember if I mentioned it on this podcast, but I've definitely mentioned it elsewhere and written, you know, like tweeted about it, talked about it in passing. Um, but she also, you know, she comes from immigrant background, both of her parents are immigrants. Um, her sister had a child uh, before, you know, not being married. She was very young when she had her daughter um, and, you know, relied on, on family and the support of others to get her through life. And then 
graduated and you know went on to become a very prominent member of the Democratic Party. I'm talking about her sister right now. Um, but Kamala also, you know, arguably has dealt with some adversity, at least just as a part of that family unit. And she doesn't seem to, I mean, I, I personally don't understand it, but she doesn't seem to connect back um, to people who are going through similar things that her family went through when she was younger. And I think that Again, this is just me talking for myself, but you know, I have experiences in my life that made me more sympathetic, if not empathetic, to certain circumstances of other people. And I, instead of looking at them and saying, "Why didn't you make it? Why aren't you doing like I did?" Whatever, like not that I've made it, but you know what I mean. Like, how, why? Why aren't you, um, you know, more financially stable, or why aren't you trying to get an education, or why aren't you? Why aren't you? Why aren't you? Why aren't you? And instead of asking those questions, I'm saying to myself, like, what is still happening? What is ongoing in your life that's making this, making getting those things difficult for you? And how can I help? You know, like, how can I help sustain you right now? And I think that's, that's the question that like these kinds of people aren't asking. They're looking further into ways of like how they can destroy. And I don't, it's, it's, I mean, it's something that I, it's a type of tokenism that I see on all levels of the political spectrum, but there's like this, this need for some people to be the only fill in the blank group person in the room, you know? So I want to be the only black woman in the room. I want to be the only LGBTQ identified person in the room. I want to be the only Asian American person in the room. And in the process of doing that, they exclude harm and alienate people from the group that which, you know, that they once called home or from which they came and um you know it's 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 a very disturbing practice but it's something we see all the time and something that unfortunately the democratic party continues to to maintain to like sustain as part of their political message and what i'm concerned about is and i see it getting worse and worse actually i'm very concerned that soon the understanding will be that if you see a black face, if you see a woman, if you see any sort of like, um, you know, a sort of like a, an embrace of diversity, which I think is necessary for at least in terms of having diverse experiences. If you see an embrace of that, there's like a negative political and especially economic and foreign policy side to follow. That concerns me, you know, because I don't want the and this is also a concern I had with regard to like the constant language around black women being the backbone of the democratic party and helping put so-and-so into office and whatnot. This sort of language concerns me because then the stereotype becomes, well, if you're a black woman or if you're a person of color, or if you're LGBTQ or whatever, then you support the establishment. It's your face. Who's the end that of the enemy. And we already have enough to deal with, right? Like we already have to deal with enough racism, sexism, you name it. And so the last thing I need is to also then be the enemy for the left. If, if I don't know if I'm making sense, it's like, it's an unfair portrayal because it's not accurate. Um, but it also is one that I think repeatedly, um, you know, like obscures, if not intentionally degrades and overlooks the contributions and if not like literal creation in some ways of left ideology by people of color, by women, by marginalized groups, who've had to fight using the language of oppression as a means of polit like political organization, you know? And I think that like the fact that we're being forced into these like positions 
uh, political positions, you know, like the, the sort of um, blanketing of our groups is really dangerous because it, it puts us, it like, it, it creates like a hyper visibility on us for reasons that I'm not comfortable with at all. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. And there's a, I think there's at one point, uh, Biden even, you know, kind of made in a, a, a comment to the effect of limiting the kind of black community to one monolithic uh, entity. And I think that the, the concept of that you're describing of the, I guess, zeroing in on certain establishment figures that also occupy uh, marginalized identities becoming the enemy is also i mean it's something that i've noticed and i feel like it's also very commonly like a a avenue for people with a other unresolved racist or racial kind of uh, issues that they it exposes them or it acts as a venting mechanism or place for them in that where they they feel comfortable uh reaching into like racist memes or kind of racist uh, tropes and so on and so forth to describe these marginalized people because they're representatives of an establishment figure and then also painting with a broad brush or then not recognizing the kind of uh broader implications or broader effects of that language or of those that kind of rhetoric being used generally and so forth and i think the other point that you make uh, about just these appointments in general and specifically to foreign policy i think it, like the the person in particular that comes to mind is lloyd j austin austin the third i guess is a retired general who's on currently on the board of raytheon who is actually currently under investigation from the DOJ as corrupt as that already is for uh, financial problems. And so like the idea that somebody that sits on the, on the board of directors for a defense industry company that's already under investigation is going to be brought into the Biden administration and essentially championed because of the, his identity. I think it encapsulates this kind of the obscuring of the, uh, the kind of horrific kind of underlying problems with the people in favor of identifying or of focusing in on their identity. And I think, uh, so I think both of those points are important, both the kind of then does this person uh, open up the opportunity for people to use, you know, like, I see for as a specific example, you know, it's like the usage of like Uncle Tom's or, you know, other kind of epithets and that range being used by people that aren't black feels very uncomfortable for me. And Twitter has that anonymity to it so that you never really know and you can only more or less assume unless you're particularly familiar with a, a handle or whatever. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I think also like we see, for example, sometimes um podcasters or like youtube people or whatever calling people bitches like men cisgender men calling women or um just people they don't like bitch um and i i have the same discomfort that comes from that um like that you're talking about with uncle tom and, and other like racist epithets that are sort of like intra community based if that makes sense like it's okay. Mm -hmm. It's like it's it's okay if like I use it or you use it, but like not something that I want like white comrades to be using necessarily. Although I think it is applicable in some cases, like regarding like because there may not be another word for it for other groups. So like I, I was asked once, you know, 
would you call Ben Shapiro like an Uncle Tom for Jewish people? Um, because he was like aiding the right and the right wing that's like clearly anti-Semitic and things like that. And I was just like, whatever, like, I don't, I don't personally take offense to it in that case because there may not be an applicable word, but it's a word or term that everyone understands the meaning of, right? It means you're a turncoat, someone who betrays your own group, et cetera. And perhaps we just need a different, like a better word for it, you know, or better phrase um, that can be used for other groups as well. But it's definitely one that like people know what it means. The question is though, you know, if you're using it to refer to black people, if you're not black, is it necessary, necessarily your place um, and what that looks like? And, you know, it's, it's a touchy, it's a touchy subject. And as you said, I think it sort of gives people license or people feel like it gives them license if they're criticizing someone's politics to then also dip into that um, kind of practice and not realize how it can alienate people of color who are also on the left. I mean, it's very similar to like, to me, it's it's the left version of like what we saw when Democrats were making fun of Trump and using his body or his mental capacity or, you know, his hair or whatever, like talking about his body or talking about certain aspects of who he is as a person, as opposed to like dealing with his politics, right? Because then you're going to say, oh, so there's something wrong with being fat. Okay, now you're just being offensive. You're, you're like, you're sideways offending bigger people by virtue of talking about Trump's body, right? Um, or you're talking about supposed mental uh, issues, like fill in the blank. I mean, there were so many that were used regarding Trump, but that then you're saying that there's some sort of inherent quality or correlation between having these mental issues and like his behavior or his politics, which there is not. Like you don't have to be fat or mentally ill or whatever to like be a racist piece of garbage and a terrible president and like, you know, a Republican or whatever. Like these things are not connected because there are plenty of Republicans who are quote unquote respectful and smart and who went to Ivy League colleges and who, you know, are well-dressed and in, in great shape. And it's not relevant, you know, like it's not connected and you end up alienating people on your side too. And so I think that sometimes this also happens on the left. Um, so I, I hear where you're coming from. I remember there was a lot of homophobia regarding like Trump and Putin yeah. too. Like that was yes. a big one. Yes. I forgot about that. That's right. That was like one of the biggest ones actually, like the most prevalent element. Um, there was also a lot of like weird anti-immigration stuff because of Melania being an immigrant. So like, yeah, I recognize that he's a hypocrite, but like, you don't have to also like insult like women immigrants like, because you don't like Melania. Like there was a lot of just weird, weird stuff going on. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad that that's going to be gone, at least when he leaves office, uh, among other things. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's, it's, it's just also in juxtaposition with what I think is kind of an overriding theme of kind of a, an appeal to trying to, uh, I don't know, assuage uh, white people in the center-ish to the right-ish and like, appeal to this working class coalition without addressing race. And like that's predicated on more or less a don't offend this, uh, uh this kind of this mysterious white working class grouping that, mm -hmm. uh, is supposedly, uh, aligned with us on a long class interest, but is not ready for wokeness or, you know, like ID poll or in the derivative, like they're not willing to, it, it's this weird 
uh, juxtaposition of where it's we're supposed to continue a long 200 year plus history of just you know accepting the consistent and constant you know racism and sexism and so on and so forth from well-meaning white leftists that just haven't learned the language so on and so forth and it's like we're supposed to continue doing that but then also we can't offend these well-meaning uh, white leftists and their their uncles and brothers and fathers and and whatever that will be that can't deal with not being able to say these racial slurs and not being able to do those things it's like so it's just like i don't it's a frustrating thing where there's a, pro, uh, uh, a suggestion that, well, if uh, the most marginalized peoples uh, of the working class coalition just put aside their non-specific, you know, generalizable working class conditions that appeal to white leftists and, and, and their family, that then we can eventually then we can reach this thing and it's just like we've we've done that for hundreds of years you know right, that's right. Uh, generally appealing to to this and, and what we've gotten is further centrism we've gotten joe biden and we've gotten joe, donald trump and donald trump still being like the favorite candidate for republicans in 2024 so that's where we're at <laughs> yeah i mean it's where you kind of see and again like you and i and me separately you separately like we've gone about we've had this discussion ad nauseum, right? Like we, we discussed it on delete your account. I've, I've discussed it nonstop on Twitter and have for literal years. Like I'm, I'm exhausted to be honest. Like I had, I had a moment the other day where I said to myself, you know, like, I'm just going to stop trying to convince people that racism is also bad. Like, you know, I just, it's, it's like a, it's like a bottom barrel, like should be a given, you know, I shouldn't have to explain that to people anymore. I shouldn't have to explain why, why like racism, sexism, homophobia, um, anti-immigration sentiment, like xenophobia, all these things are also bad and they limit our reach as leftists to bring more people into our coalition. And if you ha are okay with those things, what you're telling me is you're okay having a coalition that's basically limited to white straight men who are Christian. Like that's what you're telling me. And I don't think that that's where we need to go if we're trying to expand a base. Um, and people, I've said it, I mean, I wrote an article about this back in 2017, 2016 or whatever, where I said, you know, if people keep doing this, they're gonna sit and wonder like why there are so many people of color who are still voting for Democrats that are real shitty, but that they see as their only option. And like, if you, if you have like a, a stench following you, you know what I mean? The stench in this case being that you're racist, you're sexist, whatever else, you either need to take a bath, clean up your shit, or you need to just embrace it. I don't know. I mean, like people are just embracing it, I think, instead of trying to rectify what's going on internally on the left that needs to be fixed. And it's like a long-term problem. Like I've talked about this um, as it relates to books that have been written about this. So like Michael Dawson's book, um, Blacks In and Out of the Left. I discussed that on a, the, one of the Jacobin podcasts and, uh, or sorry, the, the podcast is not itself the Jacobin podcast, but it's affiliated with Jacobin. And like, you know, it's important that we recognize that like, if we're gonna build a coalition, we don't all need to be, you know, anti-racist educators, okay? Like that's not necessary. We don't have to necessarily use that kind of language. But what we do need to recognize is like, racism shouldn't have a place on the left as a, as a premier, <laughs> you know, like 
aspect of our politics, it doesn't mean that you can't, like, it doesn't mean that you can't have someone in your coalition who's racist, like, maybe not a Nazi, right? Like, don't, don't be racist to that degree, but like, you may, you may have expressed some opinions or continue to express some opinions that are like, quote unquote, off color or not PC. And that what you do in those moments with someone like that is you take them aside and you say, look, man or woman or whomever, like, we have people in our group that are just like you, that are struggling just like you, and we have to respect one another and fight together. And in order for us to best do that, we can't be like calling people out of their names and like, you know, insulting people based on who they are and these like fundamental aspects of their identity. Like they're just like you in that they are also being oppressed by the state. They're also being left out in the cold economically and being ignored. And we need to come together on that front. And in order for us to come together, we have to also see each other as equals, you know? And like, this is something you and I have talked about this. You've definitely talked about this a ton as it relates to Fred Hampton. Hampton had those things, those sorts of elements to his politics as primary, you know, like before you join coalition with me, before you form a group with me, before you like come into my home, you need to clean your feet off. You know, like you have to, you have to understand that we are your equals and you have, he had like within the, the, you know, the primary objectives of the rainbow coalition, there were aspects that were like, you have to adhere to anti-racist principles before you come on with us. And that's important. I think that's an element of his politics that lots of people like to ignore. They say that he brought all these people together, but they ignore the part of like how that happened and why that happened. And so I think it's really important that we recognize that like, in order for us to operate as a unit, as a strong unit, we can't keep alienating people on the basis of, of this bullshit just because we want to appeal or some people want to appeal to it. Yes, an imagined white working class, because when I say that, like I've said over and over that it's not the white working class that are explicitly racist. It's these people who are purporting to speak for them that are racist. And it's actually their racism, their personal racism that they can't get over, or their family's personal racism that they can't get over. And they're trying to project it onto other white people. When like, I don't see poor white people as my enemy. The majority of poor white, not saying that they're all perfect, of course, but the poor white people that I know are not worried about me being black or not, or a woman or not. They're trying to eat. They're trying to survive too. And like, that's what we need to be focusing on. Instead of, instead of people assuming that all poor white people are racist or something, or that that's, it, that's what you have to lead with in order to get them to come onto a coalition with black people, when in actuality, half of them are already working alongside black people and other people of color. And in some cases, you know, are seeing them as competition because of the rhetoric that's been put out by the Republicans and the Democrats to in, in large degree. And what we need to be doing instead of, instead of like regurgitating those same bullshit talking points against other groups of color, we need to be trying to correct that and not correcting it by like chastising people necessarily, but trying to reframe the messaging. And I think that's really easy to do. And people are just like, not some people are not brave enough to do it because of their own personal biases and their own biases in their family. And they don't want to get over that. But um, I want to switch gears really quick, but you can obviously feel free to weigh in on that. But I know you wanted to talk about the Indian protests and I would love to hear more about that. I've been kind of reading here and there and seeing some um, footage of it on like Democracy Now! and other places, but I haven't been closely following it. So I'd be curious to know your thoughts. Um, but yeah, feel free to add whatever you want and then we can talk about that. Well, I think the one of the central things that ties all this together is the kind of the, the anti-capitalism -cap and what 
I think part of what isn't being recognized, I think, in some corners is just that race, like maintaining those racist beliefs is not good anti-capitalism. And it's like, that's like what was one of, very central to Hampton's coalition as well was that we're not going to beat uh, capitalism with black capitalism or any form of that, but with anti-capitalism, with communism, socialism, this is, that's, so you're not executing that if you're maintaining these kind of racist tendencies. And I think that also aligns with the international solidarity and uh, India plays a role in that as well. And so like what we're seeing there is basically there was a government subsidy or uh, essentially a, a government floor of prices that farmers were able to sell their, their goods for. And essentially neoliberal reforms are, trying to take that away and replace it with some rhetoric that the farmers have explicitly said does not make them feel as though that they're going to be protected in the way that they are. And it's resulted in massive. And when I say masses, I'm, I'm talking about tens, hundreds of millions of people striking and uh, you're not really seeing much about it. Like you would, you did see like the Hong Kong protests or like pro Guaido protests, or, you know, we've heard about what the Bolivian uh, election, even to a degree it's, I think in large part, because there's a lot of iconography with uh, hammer and sickles and it's a lot of communists that are acting and like, and just that aspect of it is very uncomfortable for Western media to cover. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. And so we're it, uh, it's also there's other reforms in in there but essentially uh, indians far indian farmers uh live about off of about 650 dollars uh, us dollars a year and so the floor that they're concerned about is is very important and so even marginally chipping away at that can have not just drastic effects for the individuals but can have drastic effects system, systemically for india's agriculture which basically would lead it towards more commercial agriculture like we've seen in the United States. And India doesn't necessarily have a pathway for these citizens to move, like to move out of agriculture and into some other industry that would then, you know, it, it, like they're not considering these things and it's largely predicated on the desperation of capitalism model where the more desperate they make people, the more creative they get to find ways to, you know, sustain themselves. And then that, capitalism succeeds more or less in that kind of general model. And I guess I'll pass it to you there. So do you know anything about like the process of getting these farmers together? Like what the origin of all of this is? Uh, you know, I know, I know that the communist party is in India and like uh, there's various regional parties uh, throughout India because India is obviously a massive country, both geographically and numerically with the people. And so there's a, a variety of parties that are involved. But I, I, the, as far as I know, I know a lot of it's being headed up by a lot of communist parties. But then a lot of the farmers kind of organically just, I think a lot of this emerged organically at the markets and like through just speaking to one another and, and kind of recognition of what was happening. But I will look further into that. Well, you can go on. No, sure. I mean, I was just curious because, you know, one of the challenges here is just like the extensive surveillance that we have in the United States and obviously like organizing online is pretty much a no-go, but that's what a lot of people are doing right now because of the pandemic, right? Um, I'm just curious, like, 
not necessarily what something like this would look like in the United States, because I don't see it happening in the United States. Not to be pessimistic, but like we don't have um, a farming economy or an agricultural economy anymore in the same way that we used to um, because of outsourcing and all these things. And I think the way that the way that a mass scale protest would look in the United States would be slightly different just by virtue of the nature of the economy and work here, right? Like the way labor operates in the United States, the majority of people, um, what kind of work they're doing, you know, like our, the the grand majority of our working class is in the service sector. So like fast food jobs, grocery store workers, drivers, um, and a lot of like third party style gig work, you know, um, so I wonder somewhat, like, I, I just feel like we're so, we have like a sprawling um, breakdown of our, like the, the way labor is sort of separated per, I, I don't know if I'm making sense, but like, you know what I mean? It's almost like a, like a, like a, a spider of sorts, right? As opposed to, you know, like one small thing or like, I don't know, I'm not making sense. I'm not making sense. Yeah. I'm trying to make sense. I'm just like really tired. But I think that what my point is like, there's so many different sectors here and of them, it's not a lot of manual labor. It's like so much um, gig economy style labor, service sector labor. And then how do you, the question is like, what would organizing those groups look like here? And it would be different, I think, than perhaps because what we're looking at in India sounds, reminds me actually of like Russia 1917. You know what I'm saying? That when you think about like farm labor and whatnot, you think about like the origin of communist revolutions as opposed to the kind of revolution we might have here, which I think would have a slightly different set of characteristics. Yeah, just looking further into it, it, it looks as though a lot of it came from uh, the farmers, like themselves, like I was saying, uh, basically speaking of the marketplace, and then the trade unions as well, which is another place that has been devastated in the United States yeah. since its heydays. And it's been, I think when you speak to organizing, that's a critical aspect of it. And not just organizing uh for a particular cause or something like that. But I think what's key about unions and that specific style of organizing is the capturing of power. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of the next uh, step that I think people are looking for. I think some people have started to organize things to meet material needs in their communities. And I think that was critical and, and most and extremely critical in the COVID because the government simply was not doing it. You right. know, people gave people a twelve hundred dollar check and said, "Good luck," you know. Yeah. And so people like I've seen just people set up, you know, little, like a bookshelf in their front yard with food that just gets j dropped off and picked up, and it's not specifically, you know, heavily organized or anything, but it's given people something to organize around and seeing uh, things happen in local parks. And uh, I've seen uh, things like uh, hair cuttings in the park and, and doing things that are maybe not exactly specifically in the realm of legal, but amid the conditions right now, isn't necessarily something that's uh, attracting police attention, given the plethora of concerns that are, are out there and the lack of resources that are available. You know, many states and local localities are extremely strapped for resources as a result of shortened tax income because of, again, COVID, and then also because the federal government has failed to pass legislation to meet those shortfalls in the budgets and uh, a cover for increased state unemployment benefits that have been 
haphazard or that has been uh, haggardly passed out and, you know, not effectively many websites crashed. People have been unable to get access to them. And so we, we, we have these kinds of uh, events transpiring. And uh, I guess with uh, India, you know, you have, uh, it's not as if India is as uh, developed economically or technologically as much of the United States is, but uh, the more you realize, the more you look internationally, the more you realize in the, like the, the Mecca or the uh, like top, uh, the, the highest economic producing parts of various countries around the world, most much, much of the United States is actually far behind what's going oh, on yeah. there. Sure. Well, uh, the economic disparities, still in the United States are among the highest, if not the highest comparatively around the world. Uh, other countries have managed to take that concentration of wealth and while still having, you know, billionaires and absorbent wealth concentrated in among a few hands, still managed to socially distribute things because they re- recognize at the bare minimum that there are certain things that you provide society that make them more productive, even if your only intention is to exploit them for your own personal gain. Mm-hmm. A lot of thoughts about what you just said. So thank you for saying it that way, because I think that helps like, clarify what I was trying to say. So it's not so much a matter of like, oh, we're more developed or whatever. It's almost like in that more technical development, we've, what we've seen is like a further alienation from labor, right? Um, and a dangerous one. And I think that one that like makes organizing here more difficult in some ways not always but like in some ways because everyone's like off doing their own thing right um and i mentioned in passing on twitter once i was just like so many people are unemployed right now that what do what does union organizing look like you know like how do we deal with that aspect of things as well like not just the fact that you know like i've already mentioned labor has such such a like different set of characteristics in hyper capitalist countries but also the fact that like if people are unemployed as they are now and on mass, what do we do in terms of labor or like, what does labor organizing look like for the, um, not only the, not only the unemployed, but the undocumented too, right? Like that's another element in the U S that we have like a massive issue with in terms of like not oftentimes not, not having labors or any, labor unions or any sort of representation for undocumented workers who make up a massive percentage of our labor force here it's like just completely under the table you know um and have very little representation there are some groups that try to advocate on their behalf but um in terms of their personal rights to organize they're few and far between and obviously because of the fact that they're like under constant threat of deportation or being caught as being here quote unquote illegally or whatever um the other thing you mentioned about sort of people doing their own thing I really, I don't know, I feel like, you know, I, I have to think back to like when Trump was first elected and people were freaking out. Some people, not everybody, but like some people, especially liberals were freaking out and, um, you know, I'm going to move to Canada. And there was all this sort of um, hyperventilating about what what's going to happen with Trump in office. And I remember at the time just tweeting and commenting to friends, like at this point, we're going to have to combine our resources and think about every single thing like each person is individually capable of in order to help people off the record, right? Like under the, under the table, uh, what can be done? Are you a healthcare professional? Are you someone who has access to medication through some other means? Are you have someone, are you someone who has some sort of skill legal or otherwise to help people out for free pro bono work, you know? Um, and 
I also at the time, like back when you could still travel safely, um, you know, I was going to Brazil a lot and other countries and Turkey, Europe, parts of Europe. And I could, I would be able to get some medicines that were here, you require a prescription for, but I could get them over the counter or, you know, like just going up to the pharmacist and asking rather cheaply. And I would keep them and give them to people. Like I wasn't, I wasn't selling medicine. I was literally sending people Medicaid, like life-saving in some cases medication because it was free or available without a prescription in other countries. And like, those are the sorts of things that at the time, you know, we didn't have COVID to worry about, but at the time was helpful, a helpful way of thinking about like what we can do beyond the formal organizing that takes place. But nowadays, I think it's, it's, you know, it's obviously complicated by travel limitations and health just because there's a pandemic. But those are things that people have to start doing. I mean, I think that's perhaps one alternative for the time being um, to, uh, you know, the, the lack of unions in the United States, the lack of union-based infrastructure, particularly for unemployed and undocumented people. Um, this idea of mutual aid that I am happy is becoming, you know, it's coming to the forefront for a lot of organizers as a way to meet people's needs. But obviously it has to go beyond that because you can only do so much as an individual. You can only do so much as one organization or a few organizations, whether they're formal or not. Um, and we just don't, I, I mean, we don't, we don't necessarily have a way of turning those mutual aid um, efforts into like a nationwide infrastructure because of the limits that are placed on that. And also because of the way, like so many of these movements get so quickly co-opted. Like I saw there was a, I'm, I'll shut up in just a second. I promise. Um, but there was a, there was a Haymarket books uh, discussion, which I'll find and link in the, in the description uh, for this podcast, but, or in the show notes, but they were talking about the fact that, you know, Black Lives Matter isn't just, or like the movement for Black Lives isn't just one organization. It's like a like myriad organizations with doing all sorts of different things, tackling issues that affect Black people and particularly poor Black people from a variety of different angles. And yet the way they're presented by the, in the press or the mainstream media, or just even on like on the left, is sort of like one big monolithic like unit. When, when in actuality, it has a lot of sort of anarchic qualities. Um, it's, it's, you know, symmet what is it, um, horizontal leadership and things like that, that end up lending it the ability to kind of function on multiple levels in ways that sometimes if you're just one organization, you have limitations placed on you, you know, in that regard, because you have to deal with negotiating with government for contracts and funding and all of this stuff. And it's very limiting and you don't necessarily have the ability to reach as broad of a community. At the same time, the limit is of course, limitation is of course that there's not often a clear single message there's not a point person there's not you know like a lot of things are blamed on movement for black lives or black lives matter that happen because they don't have a single spokesperson to go to and say oh no we didn't advocate for that or whatever but i do think that through this type of organizing despite some of its flaws there is more opportunity to reach more a greater number of people a broader group of people and perhaps do more work um, than they would be able to do if they were just like a single organization with a single message and a single spokesperson or board or whatever. No, I think that's uh, all excellent points. And uh, I'm 
reminded of a few things. One of the things I think of is I imagine DeRay is probably still like being presented in various boardrooms or whatever corporate meetings and stuff as basically the BLM and like we've had him and now he's spoken to us. And so now you've done your thing. You've done, you, you can, you know, put a hashtag and on your Instagram and you've done the thing. You're good to go, go back to wall street and exploiting people. And, and, and one of the other aspects that kind of comes to my mind is what this, it reflects to me back in the early days of BLM and the just movement for black lives in general and the reactions to uh, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin and beyond and the many Tamir Rice and the list that's far too long. Laquan McDonald and so, continues, continues. Uh, and the kind of disruption disruptive nature of some of the protests early on and the kind of backlash to, Oh, you know, my traffic is being interrupted and I'm thinking to the kind of class solidarity aspect of what organizing looks like now and the union aspect and Amazon and we're approaching a holiday. And uh, I wonder would people, if Amazon workers said, you know what, we've been working through COVID without adequate protections. We're not getting adequate testing in the facilities. They're not getting shut down when, when there's testing or when people are discovered and people aren't being sent home appropriately. These, and you know, our wages are poor, you know, we're being pushed to the point where, you know, people, there's all sorts of stories about, you know, people having to relieve themselves in like bottles and so that they can meet quotas and so on and so forth. It's just deplorable working conditions, so on and so forth. Say Amazon, employees managed to through reddit or some other you know platform where they've been you know communicating with each other they shut down and people's christmas presents don't arrive are they going to be more upset about their christmas presents being not arriving or are they going to be more upset about the the horrific conditions that caused these all these workers to act in solidarity and refuse to work in under those conditions and at this point in time right. I mean, they... we know we know what they're going to be more <laughs> upset about sadly right <laughs> <laughs> And so I don't think that there's like people like, you know, the part of the argument that we were talking about earlier is that people say that, you know, that if we uh, focus on the, the class solidarity without addressing the racism, that somehow that will avoid the kind of conflicts and the pushbacks and all this stuff. And it's like, that's not the case. Like people aren't going to be any more excited about disrupting their lives for workers than they are about, you know, than they were for all the early Black Lives Matter protests. And we had a... Uh, a kind of uh, a a peak moment after the the murder of George Floyd and every, like so many people in the country were forced to watch it and you know and sometimes many of us too many times and in, in times and conditions when it just simply wasn't appropriate and it became a meme and it it, it became a whole lot of other things and uh i even saw it after the uh the whatever Paul brother fight or whatever. And so like there's been, it's been a, a critical moment in this. And one of the things that we had hoped that we were going to get is what we did see out of through some immediate radical protesting and action that there was at least promises of significant changes, how much of those materialized after the, the radical protesting 
faded away or at least to the degree that it was uh, at and then there are still people in the streets uh, in Kentucky from Breonna Taylor and beyond and across the country still like, I mean there, there's uh, Manuel Ellis and Tacoma and several more and there's another shooting not too like within a week or so of when we we're recording I don't have the name off the top of my head again there's just so many people that are getting murdered in the streets that it becomes difficult and trying just to keep them all in your head because while they're in your head you keep their stories too and those stories are so so devastating and so i mean it becomes a, a burden that i you know uh, i carry as much as i can but i admit uh, i falter in some cases when it comes to remembering all of the names of all of the season all that have been murdered by police and that continue and most recently we've heard joe biden to the front of where we're heading electorally or politically basically regurgitate the bad apple routine and we're, it feels very much that we're taking even a step back from the beer summit even oh yeah definitely i mean i think we are regressing in a lot of ways um on this front uh i'm sure you saw already the leaked uh discussion there was a conference call with joe biden and uh several um you know people just defined as black leaders people who are over you know the naacp and other black groups not any that we would, we would consider, you know, radical in any way, but like kind of, you know, centrist or establishment aligned um, leaders. And they were so passive um, in, and, and sort of deferential to Biden. And Biden was insulting the whole way through, racist the whole way through, um, engaged in practices of pitting Black, like I, wish, I should say African-American and Latino people against one another at one point. I mean, it was just a hot mess. And I don't, and, and literally he kept going back to the whole, this whole defund the police thing is why we're in this mess. And um, as Democrats losing the, the, the house and whatnot, or potentially losing the house or losing seats, I should say in the house, not losing the house, but losing house seats and whatnot. It's just... <sighs> I don't know. There's a lot of deep sighing in this podcast, this, step, this episode, because <laughs> that's my constant state of being at this point. Um, but I think, first of all, you know, what's interesting to me is when I see some people on the supposed left start regurgitating these same lines from the Democrats. And it's really disturbing, actually, because sometimes they preempt the Democrats. So before the Democrats start saying, things like defund the police is not the best slogan or defund the police is what made us lose seats. You know, I remember hearing some leftists say it, or people, again, people who call themselves leftists. They were like, abolish the police is not a good slogan. Okay, what about defund the police? Well, defund the police is not a good slogan because it, it's too much of a threat and, and people aren't gonna like it. And you know, white suburban voters aren't gonna like it. But I'm like, do I give a shit what white suburban voters say? Maybe on some things, but for the most part, they're not the ones who are putting progressives in office. You know, they're, they're the ones who are voting for Biden, top of the ticket and Republicans all the way down. I'm not worried about what white conservatives in the suburbs think personally. Um, you know, that's not my focus. That's not my base. What I care about is like, who is benefiting the groups on the bottom? Who's supporting them? Who's standing up for them? Who's putting in legislation, if anything, that's going to help these people survive at least, you know, like instead of making their life worse. And, um, you know, white suburban voters are not necessarily the ones with those concerns at top of mind. And so they're going to be fine no matter what. You know, I worry about the people who are not going to be fine under either administration. And so it's really frustrating to see sometimes this language um, 
being spouted by people who are supposed to be our allies, comrades, whatever. Um, but then I also see a similar kind of, I don't know, like breakdown, or I saw a breakdown when it came to Black Lives Matter because instead of going out, some people, not all, but instead of going out to some of these protests and working with people on the ground and trying to radicalize people further beyond just thinking about race and policing, but also thinking about the way race and class, um, you know, like class inequality and access to healthcare and like all these things combined results in the kind of violence that we see police you know, like carry out in certain neighborhoods against certain groups of people. There's a lot of stuff happening at once that that leftist activists, leftists, you know, like people who identify as, as leftists could have gone into these protests and actually got people, gotten people to talk about, you know, because I think some people don't understand necessarily the link between anti-capitalism and anti-racism and it exists and it's a strong one. And I think that there could have been a moment that would have been a moment to capitalize on that. I hate to use that word, but being like anti-capitalist, capitalize on it and kind of use it as an as an out like an outlet to discuss all of these interconnected issues, um, and you know make make these kinds of progressive movements towards racial racial equality even more progressive and say, look, it's not just not just race here. You know, like these people are being targeted and and um, harassed and killed yes, on the basis of their skin color and on the basis of the racist history of this country, but that kind of behavior is further fueled, replicated, and intensified by virtue of economic issues and inequality and even like imperialism, right? Because they're testing this this weaponry on people who are just like us abroad and bringing it back here onto our streets. So like we need to protest from like a variety of angles and make demands from a variety of angles. And that opportunity was missed in many ways by some leftists who don't want to see race as a quote unquote real issue that the left needs to tackle. Um, Or racism, I should say, not race, but racism. And arguably, you know, they let the ball drop. They let they let an opportunity pass while they were so busy talking about how Black Lives Matter is neoliberal and this and that when they didn't really know anyone who worked with Black Lives Matter. They didn't know people who were working on the ground. They didn't listen to the people who were doing podcast after podcast who were saying, look, I'm, I'm a Marxist and I'm in the streets for Black Lives Matter. You know, those kinds of people got ignored and they instead focused on what was a capitalist rendering of the black and like co-opting of the black lives matter stuff in the streets you know that's who they listen to and this is also what happens with identity politics which we've talked about before but like instead of looking at what's actually happening they're looking at the capitalist co-optation thereof and criticizing that and then applying that to the entire movement when that's not the movement's fault right like just like you wouldn't necessarily say Jacobin is bad or communists are bad or socialism is bad because some some progressive uh, representative or senator or whatever got co-opted by the right. You wouldn't blame the whole movement. You would blame that individual. But when it comes to black issues, when it comes to black, this is what I was talking about earlier, right? When it comes to black issues in particular and a lot of issues related to people of color, like you see this with the immigration movement as well, the blame is not placed on capitalism for co-opting a movement and turning it into like a trend 
it's blame the blame is placed on individual people of color who are fighting for their rights every day and they're the ones who are who are portrayed as the enemy by some of these people and what i just feel like that's so incredibly craven and like messed up and and like just myopic you know like you're and, and intentionally so you know because the other option is to look at the opportunity that some sort of movement like this offers to radicalize people as a, as a vector, as an entry point. And instead what they're doing is they're, they're throwing their hands up and they're saying, well, it's co-opted, no point in discussing it anymore, no point in addressing this, let's give up. It's much easier to do that, you know, and, yeah, and it's a problem. Yeah, it's because then don't have to unpack your own stuff and or the stuff around you that you've, you know, been a party to or seeing or whatever. And I mean, I can understand to a degree, you know, I'm not a member of every marginalized group. And so I can understand at least uh, somewhat to a degree, you know, like why uh, it's uh, tempting or easy to like... Uh, reach for misogynistic tendencies or tropes or learned behavior when criticizing somebody like Joanne Reed or something, because I like a lot of about what she does upsets me and uh, it, it's frustrating and it, it's counterproductive in a lot of ways, I believe. But like, I also recognize that it becomes, she makes an easier target for me because I don't, uh, and I can also be caught not addressing uh like i mentioned all those things on behavior and so forth misogynistic tendencies because you know i can lean on her bad politics and it, it leaves room and it, it grants people grant more uh, space for it and so on and so forth but it, to me that's a lot of what it is is just not wanting to unpack those things not wanting to dig into you know like why do i not really want to deal with how racism is intricate in in unpacking capital or anti-capitalism and, and are, you know, engaging in anti-capitalism and how anti-racism can't be separated from that. And it's a lot easier to just be like, oh, well, I just want to focus on this other part and not have to learn about why these other white leftists that I revere were inadequate in these areas or why their philosophies or their recommendations didn't apply uh, you know, couldn't be transposed specifically to the U.S. condition for Black Americans or other marginalized communities within the United States, and it it becomes very difficult. And the, what you mentioned about like the defund the police thing, I wanted to mention is like police are murdering Black people in their homes with impunity, and then they're coming in between Black Lives protesters and white supremacists and putting their back towards the white supremacists and putting their shields towards the people protesting for black lives it's like defund defunding those people is a remarkable compromise in and of itself like <laughs> abolishing is 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 a a polite way to deal with it i believe you know mm -hmm. it's like look at what we're we're dealing with a gang like with with a, a group of people that are just uh like just killing people they're killing and abusing and and robbing people this is the recently study came out that police were stealing more property than burglars were Jesus. and yeah it's it, it this is a the the perpetual nature the 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 whole institution of policing is rotten to the very core every every aspect of it is not i can't even say corrupted because it was instituted and created in such a nefarious way and for such nefarious purposes in every aspect from in the southern with the slave uh, patrols and in the north as specifically anti-union anti-worker 
crackdowns. And that was essentially where the formalized policing came from in the North. So like, as well as helping return slaves to the South, but uh, primarily it was used by merchants to secure cargo and secure property and to, and to basically beat the crap out of workers who demanded too much. And so like that, that was where the police came from. And so it's not fair to say that they're corrupted or that they need to be reformed or the, the very institution at its core is, is devious, is, is, is nefarious and should not be salvaged. And the ideas that are worth keeping of, you know, uh, like getting people, rehabilitating people so that they can be members of society in ways that, uh, we can all get along and so on and so forth. Like those are separate. You, we can separate that from the policing institution and the criminal justice system as it exists. And so when we say, when people say abolish the police or defund the police or uh, uh, abolishing the criminal justice system or prisons and so on and so forth, not only do they mean it, I mean, they mean it <laughs> and more most of the time, although there has been the most recent liberal co-option, at least with the defund of, which is really kind of maybe defund some of them, defund some social programs, <laughs> but we really want to keep the police because who else are we going to call when the poor people come for our stuff? Mm-hmm. And, and it's just like, and so like, I, I, what people, they mean it when they say defund and abolish the police and that's okay. And that's, that's what we should want because look at what they are doing. Like look right. at the role that they are performing in society. And it's not, you know, addressing crime they spend less than five percent of their time dealing with violent criminals the vast majority of their crime is or their time is done or is dealing with paperwork speeding violations ticketable offenses that type of stuff the you know interfering in domestic violences uh, you know stopping bank robberies all that kind of stuff is only about five percent of police time most of the investigate investigation work is done by detectives which are separate from police and in most of those domestic violence cases, they arrive on scene afterwards. And in several states, they have uh, basically laws where all they can do is show up and either take both people to jail or nobody to jail and then leave. And so there, and there's countless stories of their inadequacies of dealing with uh, rape and piles and piles of untested rape kits and, you know, even shaming rape victims or, you know, raping the, the people themselves. So like, and domestic violence, they're more likely to commit domestic. So like, there's so many reasons that people should want to abolish the police. They like, it shouldn't even be a point of contention on the left. My opinion, sorry. No, no, you're right. I mean, (laughs) like defunding is the least we could do. You know, this is like the minor side. This is what's interesting to me, right? Um, I was just thinking about this when you said it, but so the other day, Vivek Chibber did an interview and he said, you know, um, He's, a, he's, a, he's an academic on the left. He's often accused of being a class reductionist. Uh, and he was doing it. He's the editor right now of Catalyst magazine, which is like an offshoot of Jacobin. And he was doing an interview on the Jack, the new like Jacobin YouTube channel and podcast. And he was saying, you know, that instead of defund the police, we should be saying things like build more schools, not jails or whatever, which like, okay, fine. But like, why not both? You know, like, can't we have both things? It seems to me that it's a very like liberal. uh, So for all the left hand wringing about liberals and people that they call woke scolds and whatnot, policing people's language, it's ironic and funny to me that the people who accuse others of doing that are doing that 
right? And they're doing it to kind of, it ends up resulting in the undermining of a process of, of, um, of, 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 of activists, you know what I'm saying? Like they're, they're, they're in the process of, or they were in the process of trying to push this movement to change the way we understand policing, if not to get rid of it altogether. And it's strange to me to see people who are self-identified leftists talking about how they're afraid to alienate people with language. You know what I mean? Like this is, this seems like to me a liberal preoccupation, right? Like if we're supposedly, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're talking about uh, snowflakes and all of that, right. To use some right wing language here, if we're worried about that, well, it doesn't seem like it has any place on the left. Like last time I checked, our focus should be like the end result of these movements and not necessarily like having the perfect language in the perfect moment to appeal to people who aren't going to necessarily give a shit anyway. Like the people that we need to be reaching are like, I mean, yes, I guess we, as I said before, we do need to reach white, you know, upper middle class people who live in the suburbs at one point for certain things, but like they shouldn't be our primary focus. And I just, I find it, as I said, I find it odd that people who complain all day long about the policing of language are worried when we use certain language about police. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it just seems it's it's an interesting place to be coming from. That's all I say. And it's an odd, it's odd to me that this is boiling down to semantics as opposed to the meaning and purpose behind it. Because at the end of the day, if you're a socialist, you want that funding that's the millions of dollars it's going to police to buy weapons, to kill poor people. You want that money to be going instead towards resources to help poor people, to sustain people's lives, and to make everyone's lives and quality of life better. It's odd to me that we're gonna be sitting around twiddling our fingers and talking about language instead of getting in the streets and demanding to not only defund the police, but do a whole lot more. That's, that's what we should be doing. We should say, you know what? Like, and, and I saw this in like, I saw this in the discussion of, um, or I see this present in the discussion of um, Occupy Wall Street as well. Like there's all this discussion about what Occupy Wall Street did wrong and what Black Lives Matter did wrong, as opposed to thinking perhaps about like what we can take from those movements and do better and make stronger and really push um, to result in material change that's necessary for our survival and like everybody's survival, not just yours and mine, but like, everybody's survival because the more money we spend on policing less money we have for other things the more money that goes to the top one percent the more money that's taken i should say by wall street those sorts of things it matters and and people are people are like freaking like dissecting language as opposed to thinking about the ways that they can like materially help these movements it's it's mind-boggling to me like i don't get it i don't know i maybe i'm Maybe I'm slow or something and stupid, but I just, I, I personally don't understand the sole preoccupation for some people with language or what some group is doing wrong, as opposed to thinking about ways to make them stronger and, and better. And I mean, I guess, I guess one could argue that like what he's doing is offering constructive criticism, but to have like a whole, whole episode about like why defund the police is not the right language just seems like really top-down um, elitist, like an elitist preoccupation to me. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, part of the frustration is the engagement from people that think this is something that was, you know, just thought about 
you know, a few years ago or something, you know, it's like the abolition movement is, is long and has deep roots that go way back. And like the abolition of prisons is more specifically, uh, it more largely written about specifically rather than abolishing the police. But that was kind of a, a natural conclusion of the concept of abolishing the prison industrial complex as it exists. And I think the idea of the sloganeering comes from a lot of that comes from people that are just now engaging with abolition and critiquing it from a perspective of, Oh, you know, if you want more people to, to get along on board with this, this, this is the words you got to use. And it's like, okay, well, it's one, like you mentioned, it's very important to just understand that the critical root is we want to completely change the way that we do criminal justice. And so if you're getting people signed on for just, you know, putting cameras on cops so we have good footage of them killing people, that's not what the abolition movement is after. And that is just a co-option of their language and their efforts in, their to, in order to perpetuate neoliberalistic uh, solutions to uh, the policing and modest reforms that don't actually make the fundamental changes that people are after. And so the identification of those people being opposing groups, I think is accurate. And I think that comes as an affront to a lot of liberal minded people that, that they, I want, they have a very paternalistic attitude towards abolition, the abolition movement and that they, they, they think that they want what's best for them. And that means using these words and uh, striving after these goals. But then not only do they, you know, essentially just push the movement, right. And this is often people that are, uh, from the more of a class reductionist far left, you know, sphere or whatever, but they, not only do they push the rhetoric, right. They also undermine the, the progress that's being made by the radical activist movements that are enthused by this messaging and this notion of radical changes to the point of abolishing the police. And rather than like you mentioned, um, uh, reinforcing it and emboldening it and empowering it, with the, the avenues that they have, because at the, when it comes down to it, we know that the abolitionists aren't going to have the microphones that the people that have the, the desires to tepid them or to temper the message are going to have. The, the message is going to be determined in the largest public spheres by the, the same people that are complaining about the, the to uh, abolish being too radical or defunding being too radical. It, it, so regardless of how, it's framed among the radical activists. It's still going to be framed in mainstream corporate media by the types of figureheads and by the types of people that uh, are going to use the more tepid languaging and the co-opting of language and all those types of things anyway. So the, the people that are going to be using the language that you think is going to be most appealing towards that group are going to be the liberals who uh, have a, I think prison culture said it really well recently. And he's like, they're, great at describing it, but their prescriptions are crap. Like, or, I mean, that's paraphrased by the way, but uh, like it's the, they can describe the suffering to a degree, but the prescriptions are always inadequate and then are always uh, obstructed by Republicans. And that's always the excuse for why progress can't be made and compromises must be made instead. And those compromises are always further whittling the, the, the social safety nets further whittling the protections for workers further, further whittling away uh, the, the basic underpinnings of social coherence in, in the United States for the enrichment of a handful of people to, I would argue a degree that they will allow 
the society that's holding them up to collapse underneath them and whether they have plans for abandoning it or they're just ha- they're just throwing hazard to the wind and <laughs> just assume that it'll sort itself out i can't say specifically but it seems as though that they're pushing people with uh, evictions with the lack of uh care for uh or the money through covid with the uh, lack of an economy to come back to once COVID's gone and the gigification of everything, the Amazon actively working against people that are trying to unionize. Walmart's long had a history of doing that. These massive corporations conglomerating all of our media and entertainment so that, you know, even the things that we use to escape from the droll uh, parts of society are being uh, controlled and dominating water has recently entered wall street speculation. And so we're approaching a very dystopian future and it seems as though we're all just assuming things are going to, to get better. And I, I guess my concern and my prognostication is that it, it's going to be critical to, for the organization of individuals that have been meeting mutual aid uh, needs to uh, not look to these politicians for solutions, even the more, uh, you know, hopeful ones like AOC or uh, other, like others of the squad but to be expecting to form their own local uh, power structures that meet the immediate needs and uh, subscribe and, and do what is necessary in order to, to get there. Sorry. No, don't apologize. I mean, you're absolutely right about all of that. Um, and, you know, not to be like the, the doom scroll podcast or anything, but I, I do agree that there has to be a, deeper more intense outside game being played you know um because once they're inside they're inside at the end of the day uh with regard to politicians you know like they even if they personally hold progressive principles they're forced in a lot of ways to do things to to play the game you know um and it's sometimes a very long game and it's a game that unfortunately um allows a lot of us to get hurt in the process right while we're waiting continuing to wait, continuing to wait, continuing to wait. And I think, you know, we see a lot of people who are trying to be hopeful, um, who are, who identify as progressive or leftist or whatever, um, who still engage in electoral politics, you know, you see them trying to be hopeful and supportive of these politicians, but at the same time, like, sometimes it feels like, like a, um, a game or a process maybe that people should reconsider it's security, you know, like how, how much of a gain are we making if we're just chastising these other politicians with like a tweet storm or in a speech, but then we don't have any material um, stuff to match that kind of anger, you know what I mean? Um, We have to have actions and not just words. And sometimes I think we get caught up, attracted to, amused by the words, and we don't go deeper than that. And so that's why I agree that out the outside part is also really important right now and we need to be placing more pressure on politicians regardless of their i I think just regardless of their um their ideological position too because in a lot of ways we on the left often talk about pressuring democrats because we don't expect republicans to do anything for us but republicans we can also pressure especially if they're in districts where their seat is on the line you know um say look like we won't vote you out of office if you at least do these few things and push these demands or whatever. There could be opportunities there, but I think we kind of, um, we 
we put a lot of our energies on Democrats. We focus a lot on pushing Democrats and some of those Democrats aren't willing to budge or they have other interests in mind that are, go way beyond the, the constituents. And we may not ever know what those are, um, be they personal or from lobbyists or some future p cushy position being promised somewhere. Um, like we see with, with Biden's full on revolving door. Like I have a lot of points that, you pointed out that made me want to bring up things that I'd forgotten earlier, but like with regard to Biden's people, you know, we went on and on and on in the press about, you know, Trump's cabinets and Trump's activities being super corrupt and this revolving door this and his best friend that and blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm looking at this current cabinet and I'm just like, how is this any different? You know, like the cabinet that Biden is putting together in terms of people doing favors, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. I used to work for this organization or this this company corporation and now I'm gonna do their bidding while I'm still in office with the government. Like the separating line is gone on both, both for both parties. And so it's frustrating to me that like people can see it when Republicans do it, but not see it when Democrats do it. Some people, not all, but it becomes, it's like very frustrating and kind of just reiterates the the reinforces the team aspect, you know, of sports team aspect of politics in this country. Um, if, if I don't like your team, I don't like what they're doing, but if my team does it, it's fine. You know, that's a problem. But then going back um, to what you were talking about with regard to the um, abolition movements and things like that, I think one of the reasons that I cringe so much when I see leftists getting bogged down by semantics on this front is because it reminds me so very much like a parallel of some leftist approach to international politics and instead of focusing on how they can support you know beleaguered or embattled um poli like left-leaning politicians in the global south um that are being torn down by right-wing coups or right-wing machinations and political machinations and whatnot they start focusing on well he did this or well she did that or well it, it like becomes this like needling like gadfly-ish approach that doesn't reflect necessarily what the leftists on the ground are doing and it's it's very frustrating and we see it aid the right over and over right and you mentioned that the sort of nitpicking on terminology like defund or de abolish or whatever ends up aiding the right and it does this this process it happens over and over and over and over and you know you got to wonder like what's going to give are people going to going to prioritize change or are they going to prioritize you know being the the guy in in <laughs> like the blazer with the what is it like the elbows? You know, I think about like the, the old, like the stereotypical university professor with like his books in the, in the background on the podcast and the blazer and the, and you know, you're just, you're just going to sound like an elite and you're going to sound like someone who's not all that concerned about what happens to the people that you supposedly represent. You got to pick, you know? And at the end of the day, I think that sometimes these people are out of very out of touch with reality and, then try like we were talking about earlier with people who think white working class people are all like members of the kkk or some shit and it's not them it's like the people who are saying that are the problem not the people who are poor white people you know it's been fascinating specifically it just reminded me about some of the trump protests and kind of the the far right wing generally and the factions within that 
like a lot of poor white people are very anti-police as well like mm-hmm. especially in the, in rural communities like mm-hmm. they're not pro-police and like so uh, the, occasionally in some of these pro-trump protests or conflict protests between trump supporters and uh, other various leftist groups whether some of them for uh protesters for black lives some of them just anti-trump protests a variety of protesters but uh just uh, the support for police and the boot looking for police was not always like it could it raised tension sometimes among factions of the right and so it's just like i that that opportunity is there and it doesn't mean necessarily that you can't centralize the marginalized communities that are affected the worst by policing black and indigenous indigenous people especially in the many missing missing indigenous women both in the united states and in canada as well uh and like but you can also doesn't mean that you can't also recognize that police shouldn't be murdering and and abusing white people even if it's slightly less frequently per capita than black people that's still problematic and we should all still be really upset about that not use it as an excuse for why it also happens to black people more frequently that's that's the wrong direction to be going yeah and i mean black black lives matter recognizes this they often you'll often see marches or at least some expressing of support of people who are not black who are also antagonized by police and you know the problem is that we are seeing a conflation as per usual and it's a convenient conflation because of who it lets off the hook but a conflation between um poor white people as a monolith and Trump voters as a monolith. And the reality is, as I've said over and over, and as statistics back me up on, the majority of Trump voters are not poor. The majority of the, his base is not poor. It's not poverty line poor. You know, it's not broke white people. It's, sorry, my baby's screaming in the background. She agrees, I guess. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's people who are still making middle to upper middle class, if not upper class salaries, who don't want to be taxed, who are also racist, who are also xenophobic, who are also fill in the blank, who vote for Trump. It's not, it's a culture war, if anything, it's not just economics. And I think that what gets lost is that people assume that if you don't have a college degree in this country, that you must be poor. But that's not the case. A lot of the people who support Trump are business owners, have money, have wealth, have you know, houses have cars, have, look at their trucks. Their trucks are, you know, way more expensive than the tiny car we drive. Like there is, but I have a college degree and I'm getting a PhD and I drive a car that's like, you know, not in the best shape. It's small, it's whatever. And you'll see people who maybe didn't go to college, but who had a hookup through family or something, who own a business, small business or a bigger business, who knows, who drive a huge truck that's like the cost of my house. You know what I'm saying? So like, there is a, there's a disconnect. I think some, unfortunately, some people project onto education level, a supposed class level. And that's not, necessarily correlative. There are a lot of people like me who went to college, who went to get a master's degree, who are doing a PhD, who may have debt, who may have other forms of, like may have academic debt. I don't have a ton of academic debt because I had um, full scholarships, but I do have debt from housing that I needed in undergrad, right? Um, My mom couldn't afford to rent me an apartment in New York every year, like some of my peers. Um, And, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a dis, it's a misunderstanding and unfortunately a projecting onto certain people because there's a again there's like a there's a a conflation between culture and knowledge and class 
And I have been in literal debates slash fights with people who have this idea. One of them, I'm just, I mean, I, I always say like, at this point I'm naming names because it doesn't matter. I, I don't have anything to lose by being frank about what has been said to me and what's already in the public record. But like Bashkar Sankara, who's over the Jacobin magazine, you know, he said to me directly pretty much that like, just because I'm, he made the assumption that because I'm getting a PhD, that I'm, I'm either wealthy or elite in some way, or like um, that I, you know, express or support elite interests or that I am, and this is all a discussion slash fight basically over the fact that I took issue with his dismissal of white supremacy being a problem in this country. Um, and he basically said capitalism is the problem, not white supremacy. Like people shouldn't be so worried about Nazis and whatnot. And I'm like, well, which people are you talking about? Because for some of us, we understand the direct connection between capitalism and white supremacy and are threatened by both and have to live life threatened by both. Um, and so for me, you know, I don't, I don't see like, I guess my point is like, I don't, I don't understand why some people assume that just because you have an education, that you're also rich because the majority of people, especially people of color who get educations aren't rich. You may have a degree and that's all you got. You may not have a job to follow it. Whereas someone who has a high school education, if that, who's white, may have had greater access in a market and may be making tons more than you do. I mean, I don't make any money right now. I'm on the job market looking for a job, but my, my funding is gone. You know, I'm done with my funding. I'm at the end of my rope because I'm, I'm in the process of finishing my dissertation. So the money that I rely on is leftover grant money of when I was making $20,000, $25,000 a year. And I mean, that's not something that I could live on alone. I'm married and I have support from my husband that adds to that, but he's not rich either, you know? So the point is, and I don't have family that can help me. I don't have people that can give me money. I don't, I'm not sitting on wealth of any sort or like, uh, I'm not sitting on like a, a what should I call it? Like um, a trust fund or any of that, you know? So it's, it's frustrating that people don't understand that. And I think, especially on the left, there needs to be a very clear understanding that white supremacists, and people like Trump are not exclusively supported by, not even overwhelmingly supported by poor white people, you know? And it's odd that people continue to regurgitate this, what was a liberal talking point. I remember when Trump won, MSNBC was saying this, going against all data that showed everything but that being the truth. And then I started to hear leftists say it, but then they were saying it in a way as if to like advocate for poor white people who voted for Trump. And I'm like, no guys, like the majority of poor people didn't vote for Trump regardless of race. So stop, you know? I don't, I know the numbers this year are kind of distorted because of the going to the polls versus uh, mail-in balloting and how that was sort of made things a little bit more difficult to get data. So right now people are still trying to like digest and understand what went on this year demographically, like who supported Trump and why and where. Um, but from the 2016 election, it definitely wasn't the case that he had more support from poor white people. A lot of poor white people stayed home. And so it's important to recognize like where you can build alliances, whom you think you're alienating and why. And it's not necessarily what people are presenting because I think there's a misunderstanding of what the numbers say, and if not a distortion of what the numbers say to feed people's own narratives.
Absolutely, and uh, there's long been issues with just the way we track income and wealth in this country, purposely obscuring the both the the disproportionate distribution as well as the nuances that are there at the fringes and at the at the where they're at the fringes as well. And I think the the narrative of you know the Trump supporters that was even borne out uh, as in errors in polling that they recognized and still didn't absolutely or appropriately correct for leading into 2020, but it, it was especially pronounced in 2016 where they for a long time basically polling they had used education as a proxy for income, and then also for predicting the voting uh, patterns, and it turned out that. Because there was a lot of low education voters that had uh, higher incomes that voted Trump, it completely kind of threw a wrench in the expected outcomes and the modeling for a lot of the data and the polling. And so I think that it's it's such a well-established hegemonic kind of assumption that then it's uh, people are still having a tr- trouble disentangling the that concept that actually no Trump support comes from a different, like, you know, suburban white women. He got a majority, I believe, in both uh, 2016 and 2020. And so it's just like, that's not poor. Those aren't poor working class, you know, in that traditional sense. I mean, many of them still working class if, uh, you know, not stay at home or whatever, but like they're not uh, the, the, the rural trailer, you know, or like a, Far, the 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 supposed poor where like there was that truck that was like broken down but it was there was like new model vehicle <laughs> relatively new model vehicles it was definitely newer than anything I drive but like this image also of pouring down uh, of middle class whites as well that just mm-hmm. happened to be rural that was also a part of what was going on there as well yeah there's this weird assumption definitely that like rural means poor. And it's it. The irony is that it, this kind of language is also coming from leftists who claim to want to speak for the Midwest or like whatever. You know, just like guys, you don't know what you're talking. You live in New York too. You know, like the people who are always like coastal elites, this and like of the left. I mean, the online leftists who mm-hmm. say these things, and I'm like, you are also a coastal elite. Like usually, the people saying these things are like pretty wealthy themselves, come from money, have you know mass massive degrees have money make money you know what i mean like it's 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 mind-boggling i don't know there's a lot of weird stuff going on that i'm not sure how to like what to make of it other than to say a lot of people are projecting and don't all they also lack an understanding of what the south is what the midwest is what poverty means what working class means i mean there's a lot of there are a lot of missteps going on because of misunderstandings of these things um because they're based in a lack of knowledge to be honest um yeah, the working definition of working class or middle class has been so kind of just manhandled or whatever, just been completely stretched. And so it, it, very few people are operating with a kind of working understanding that working class is a, about a relationship to the productions or the means of production. Like that's not the kind of working class that a lot of people are working with. People envision working class as essentially synonymous for that uh, vague middle class that, you know, people that work jobs that they think are deserving of a living wage and uh, that aren't uh, like too uh, 
exploitative, you know, like stockbrokers or something like that. So it encompasses uh, a vague uh, grouping rather than something specifically to deal with the relationship to the means of production. I mean, it seems kind of like some people have taken working class to mean you work. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, like, <laughs> okay, then you're working class, right? Um, and that's not necessarily the case. But I, I, I also feel like it's been like neatened up a little bit in there because working class, in my mind, used to mean poor. It was like a nice a euphemism for poor, right? Um, mm. And it was a euphemism used by politicians to clean up the language. And they didn't even use it very often, but when you did hear it, it was coming from those people to mean poor because they didn't want to say poor or work. Like working poor is another, um, to me, euphemism for poor because it sounds better than just saying poor, you know? Like, or and never the I was just sorry to interrupt, just in never the undeserving people that, you know, aren't working, mm -hmm. you know, aren't trying. Continue, exactly. So. exactly. No, but that's exactly why, you know, middle class was the language used for the longest. And then I think we really saw an explosion with Bernie and also, you know, subsequent to the, um, the Wall Occupy Wall Street movement. Well, you and I have talked about this before, how like the 99% can be a little bit misleading in the sense that like my class position albeit precarious at times and made even more so by this pandemic is not the same as someone who literally only had that $1,200 check to survive on for the entire year and that was it, right? We're both part of the 99%, but we're looking at very different realities. You know, like day-to-day -day life is gonna be different for me versus someone who's in that position. And so I think we need to, on the one hand, I understand the function of that kind of language to increase the degrees of solidarity but at the same time you know it would be to me to me it it has an almost like um it's like the class version of colorblind politics to me colorblind race mm -hmm. politics in the sense that we're all one we're all human beings and we all come to, should come together and support one another so yes but Yes, okay, but also like because you are white or because you are non-black or because you are not indigenous, you may have, a, you're going to go through the world in a very different way than I will, right? And so that that matters at times. It matters often at like when we're talking about life experience and the way the, these systems impact us. And so um, when we're talking about wealth as well, I think sometimes the euphemistic language papers over these differences that if we were to highlight, I think would make people more inclined to act, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I understand the, the reason in terms of um, the, the kind of approach, how it can work both ways. Like you can get more people on board if they also see them, see themselves as working class, but it also operates to obscure differences that matter and that are dire and that we need to address first, you know, like, I don't know. Um, not to, again, I don't want to play the semantics game now either. <laughs> like, I don't want to do what I criticize other people doing. But I do think that it's important that we recognize that, like, the term working class can mean a whole lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, and I don't remember why I brought this up. I think, I guess, because we were talking about, like, how people misinterpret um, education lining up with class or, or rural lining up with class when it doesn't necessarily apply always. Um, uh yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say on education, I think it's one of the things I bump up against a lot of is what education means. And I'm thinking Frarian sense of, you know, deeply engaging with the material world and 
coming out to a critical understanding of what it is and how to make it reflect the society and world that we want. And a lot of people, when they say education, they mean more of an indoctrination or a banking model of pouring specific information, be it either the kind of, you know, hegemonic U.S. imperialism or even more uh, leftist uh, or progressive ideas or whatever and, and manipulating and tricking people into these things and, and pouring information. I don't think that that's what we need. What we need is, again, like a material and engagement with the world and, and recognition that it's what it is, what we make of it. And I think that's also a critical part of unlearning a lot of the, the things that we have come to expect to just be uh, how things are what it is or whatever expression that people use to describe the the situation in that it is what we've made it and that we can change it and that we must change it because like we have COVID and uh, we'd be remiss without mentioning climate generally and also 2020 was the year that Australia burned like half of like all of Australia was on fire for part of 2020 but that was uh, like because it was it started in 2019 and everything that's happened it, it it's easy to forget. And we mentioned also earlier the Indian farmers and part of what they're going to be struggling with ongoing is the, the changes that climate change has brought into the Indian subcontinent as well as uh, there's, it's dramatically, dramatically changed life uh, in Mongolia and is having uh, exacerbated and cataclysmic uh, effects there. And it continues to be an issue. And, the kind of middling reform and semantic wordplay and the, you know, needling people along very slowly for lesser evilism and all this stuff has to keep in mind that we have large challenges that we have to confront. And at some point for me, it just becomes a recognition or a realization that there may be a point where the people that have the power are going to lead us into inevitable, uh, catastrophe and the only opportunity or option the only rational choice is to to uh, take hold of that power as the people as as prescribed both uh, uh, literally constitutionally and both uh, and then also uh, in the kind of the spirit of uh, free people being governed by uh, with their consent we we have to take control of our destiny and even if that means taking it away from the people that we've so long trusted. So yeah, I think those are all like, those are all points. I mean, I, I hate to make this like our end of the year wrap, but it kind of feels that like that, you know, because we've addressed so many things that um, are ongoing problems, but then like problems that have come up that seem to be exacerbating not only um on the political level, but also some issues that are recurring on the movement level. Like perhaps one of the things that we can leave people to think about is like how to better those things or like how to ameliorate, you know, some of the problems, how you yourself as an individual could be a part of either some mutual aid groups or donating or donating time or money to organizations that are doing things or people that you know are doing things. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, and I, I, I don't know if the political realm right now is necessarily the space that we can rely on. I actually know, in fact, that it is not. And so I agree that, you know, beyond just assessing 
the, the disconnect between some members of the left, some online news people, some of the Democrats, all of that. I think we have to also think about like, as individuals, um, you know, where we can reconnect to people and, and help do things within our means. Um, as much as we would like to be a part of a collective, sometimes the collectives are doing things that we may not agree with and like, what can you do to help in your own way? I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts? Uh, I'm slightly, uh, I'm kind of reminded of the, the janitor with Paulo Freire and that like the, the power of just being out in the community and meeting people where they are, you'd be surprised at how receptive people are of like just being heard and, and being understood and not trying to convince them of anything, but just trying to relate and understand what are the needs and the concerns that they're having and then finding out how those are uh, addressed by, with the uh, kind of uh, underpinning of the social, like for me, it's socialism and communism and, and uh, for others, maybe some other pending ideology, but I think most importantly, it's about the uh, our, our common humanity. And while we all have unique circumstances and conditions and that we can't necessarily fully understand those of uh, each other, it's important for us to empathize and to, to, to see ourselves in each other. And when we do that, I think it allows us to recognize that uh, given all of our shortcomings and the the issues that we have, that we have a commonality that, that surpasses that and that the, that commonality is, in my opinion, from the Ferrian kind of notion of becoming more fully human. And that means taking control over uh over the world around us and so i guess to tie those two things together what that means is is in order to have control over what's happening in your community you have to be in your community you have to be engaging with it and and hearing it and listening and not just uh speaking online or listening to various podcasts or whatever but taking that information and that knowledge and practicing it in ways that the sharing becomes uh, a practice more than a, and, and an act more than I guess a, an idea. And that's something I need to work on myself and I continually try and push myself. And admittedly the pandemic has put a wrench in that for, I think a lot of people, but it's also opened up a, a window of sorts for other people to get involved and to be engaged and to do it. Perhaps not the, the very, you know, sociable, you know, a lot of talking involved, but really just meeting people's needs and then people recognizing you when there's the next protest for, for the next shooting or for whatever is going to happen that's going in when people start to recognize you and identify you as in common cause and just be supporting and to be supportive that we, we reach a point where we are, are have that kind of active power where we can activate and actually push political change in the sense of, they have no choice but to to engage to to change and to act to satiate the masses rather than to be able to just use kind rhetoric and not ever actually deliver on those promises. Yeah, well said. Uh, as per usual, Richard, you're always you're kind of like the poet of the Left Pocket Project podcast <laughs> um, in a lot of ways, and I appreciate that. 
Um, but way more, way more material, like, you know, you're grounded in material analysis, but you're also, you have a way with words that I think is very um, artistic, kind of like what we talked about with Mal, right? To, to bring it full circle, there was a line in there about, you know, the, the artistry of, of political rhetoric. And uh, I think it applies here as well. So mm. I appreciate well, that. Much um, yeah. <laughs> so on that note, everyone, please, 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 please stay safe. Uh, we're looking at really scary numbers right now for COVID. So please protect yourselves and your families, your friends. Um, make sure you have a mask that if you can get a mask that protects you and protects others. So look into um, N95s, KN95s and KN94s um, because those are the masks that are going to protect both you as the wearer and the other person. If you're, make sure you're also wearing it properly, like check your fit and whatnot. Um, there are videos online to help with that. Uh, and I would also say, you know, if you can avoid going indoors anywhere, please do so. Um, obviously if you have to like protect yourself through any means necessary, but if you can avoid going in, if you can do grocery store pickup delivery, if you can, you know, get things delivered. Although unfortunately, like I hate how all of this, um, has been, sort of laundered through corporations that do really awful things, but you know. Yes, sometimes. tip the workers and make it cash because a lot of these corporations are known to steal the, the digital tips. So if you can yeah. tip and tip cash. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's unfortunate. We I mean, hygienic, rules, you know, like, yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, it's a, it's a balance, I guess, you know, protect right. yourselves as much as you can. Yeah, right. do what you can. Um, and if you, if you are working from home, um, you know, hats off to you i know it's difficult to do if you're not working from home even more difficult um for those of you with kids even more difficult so i understand it's a struggle struggle for in this moment right now and i just just know that like we support you and understand and are empathetic in a lot of ways um and i just hope that everyone can please stay safe christmas is coming up um hanukkah is ongoing and you know just remember that if you can this is your, as some people said, you know, the COVID year, chalk it up to being the COVID year. And the more people that stay home and stay safe, the more of an opportunity we have for reuniting in future, in the future with relatives who are still alive and family, who, friends who are still alive. So just please, please protect yourselves. Um, and uh, yeah, with that, thanks everyone. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash leftpoc. And to check us out on social media. All of our content is always free. Um, you can find old episodes, reading materials, and the like on the Patreon page. But you can also find this on our social media pages as well. Um, so yeah, thanks so much again, Richard. And we'll be back soon with new content. Oh, one more thing. Don't forget to check out, uh, we have the Comrade Mommy episodes that I do individually. Uh, but then I'm going to start doing interviews and discussions with uh, different people on as well, where I talk about parenting from a leftist perspective. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's everything. Am I miss I feel like I'm missing something. I always feel like I'm missing something when I do this sort of housekeeping, but... I don't know, uh, rate, just, and, rate and review? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say thanks to everyone, all the people that are already supporting on Patreon and any new supporters and just uh, and all the reviews and kind words. Uh, I see them and I'm not to like say anything about them, but I, I do try to at least like them and uh, I they mean a lot to me when I see people say positive things about what we're doing here. So thank you for that. And uh, thank you for sharing with people and all of that. It's very much appreciated. 
And thank you, Wendy, of course, always, as always. Thanks, Richard. Um, yeah, everyone, stay safe and thanks again. Have a good one. And thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. Be sure to check us out on social media and follow us on Patreon. at patreon.com slash leftpoc, where you can get all of our materials for free, including the podcast. And of course, donate a dollar or more per month to keep us afloat. Um, also, be sure to check us out on any other place where you get podcasts besides the Patreon page, the SoundCloud, Spreaker, Spotify, iTunes, you name it, we're there. Uh, yeah, thanks again.